Welcome to the Thriving Farmer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Kilpatrick. Our mission is to inspire, educate, and celebrate sustainable farming. We believe that you can build a profitable, sustainable farm that gives you true farm freedom. Join us as we talk to farmers, innovators, educators, and entrepreneurs to glean their top takeaways in business and life. Hey, Thriving Farmers, Michael Kilpatrick here with another episode of the Thriving Farmer podcast. And today's guest is Rachel Armstrong, who is the founder and executive director of Farm Commons, a nonprofit dedicated to empowering farmers to resolve their own legal vulnerabilities within an ecosystem of support. Rachel instructs continuing legal education classes for the American Bar Association, teaches farm law for the University of Massachusetts Amherst, and is a co-author of the Farmer's Guide to Business Structures, published by USDA SARE. Welcome to the podcast, Rachel. Thanks for having me. It's great to be able to talk with you. Absolutely. So what prompted you to establish Farm Commons? Yeah. So, you know, there was a moment. There was a moment one day and I found myself walking through a parking lot next to a nice fellow who uh, sold beef. Now, he, he had been an attorney before he returned to selling beef, as often happens with, with attorneys. And he casually mentioned to me, he says, hey, you know what, this, this CSA thing, I think these are federally re- regulated securities. And I think they're not legal. And then he got in his car and drove off. And I was standing there like, what do you mean? You know, <laughs> this was 15 years ago, 15 years ago, you know, CSA wasn't as big as it is now. Yeah. It's like, what do you mean? CSA is, is enormous. It's huge. It's amazing. It has such potential to, you know, create sustainability economically to create quality of life. Like, what do you mean? It might be illegal. And then you just drive <laughs> off, you know, you could, could, you know, a little more information. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, yeah. So at the time I was working for a nonprofit, um, I was doing a lot of uh, farm to restaurant um, work. So really trying to build markets for local food. And this planted a seed in me, like, what else do I not know about the things mm-hmm. that could be wrong legally? Um, and it, it, that really bothered me. And then once I, once I was kind of clued into that, I started seeing these unanswered legal questions all over the place. You know, uh, should we form LLCs? Should we not? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, can I sell here? Can I not? And eventually I just thought like, there's got to be answers to these questions and there should be um, some way to get those answers without having to necessarily put down the $300 an hour to ask an attorney because that mm-hmm. that wasn't working for my community either. So that was, that was why I went to law school. I, you know, I went to law school with the only purpose to Uh, create farm commons so that I could um, provide access to the kind of information that folks need to build viable, resilient businesses over the long term. Wow. So you went to school for farmers. That's amazing. That's awesome. So what, how long was that journey? Yeah. Law school is three years long. So (laughs) I entered with a purpose and I had three years to figure it out, figure out how was this going to, going to work. The best thing I had going for me was, was, you know, a decade's worth of a career in farming, food system development, working with and for farmers. So um, I was able to really pull on those relationships, create some, you know, models and ideas and shop them around to peers and colleagues and say, hey, would, if we did this, would it work? You know, if we did this, would you use this mm-hmm. organization? Would you read this guide if I wrote it? Um, and that, 
that it took a long time to to build a model that I felt would really serve the needs of of the community. And so after that, it was just about finding the startup funds to to get her going. Um, and thank God, you know, by the time I graduated, we had we had put a lot of those pieces in place, and Firm Commons was a reality. So that's really cool that you were able to go to school with a background of farming. And as you're going to school, you also know what you're there for. So it made every question you asked be probably more pertinent because it wasn't just like, I'm going to school to be a lawyer. Absolutely. You know, I, uh, Oh, I shudder to think of if I had gone without a purpose, <laughs> because yeah. it could be a very, um, a very disillusioning, alienating process. Um, and, and it gave my, it gave my, my schooling so much more meaning. Mm-hmm. I started a blog at that time. Um, and I would just, you know, I'd ride the bus a long way to law school every day. And I would uh, write blog posts on what I was learning and how, how it mm-hmm. related to the farmers that I worked with. And, and that helped um, help the organization take shape as well. Yeah, because lawyers aren't most people's favorite people. And <laughs> so I would for say sure. you're, you're probably, you know, farmer's favorite lawyer because you went for them. So um, right. yeah, we're, I'm lucky here that I've got a lawyer um, about an hour south of us has kind of taken a liking to me and um, he's willing to trade a few legal questions getting answered for vegetables. So that's been great. Um, and especially since he has a background in zoning law which is one of the major things we've struggled with here. Um, but it's been great to, you know, be able to trade veggies for that. So that's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Here's a, a great quote from your website. A single legal vulnerability can make or break a farm. What are some of the most common vulnerabilities you come in contact with, with farmers? Yeah. And that's a, that's a great question. I would say one of the n- number one vulnerabilities that we see on farms, no matter what type of production they've got, no matter where they are in the country, it's not, they don't have the right insurance. So things like they've got a great hoop house and then it's destroyed in a storm mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. the neighbor's barn dur- burns down and their property or their animals were inside. Mm-hmm. You know, they host baby goat, get, goat day and some child is stepped on or bitten or you know, they start making a cottage food item jam and somebody gets sick and I could go on and on. There's, there's the CSA drop site in town that somebody falls off the porch of Mm. all, all of those scenarios that I listed, every farmer should assume that those are not covered under their standard farm liability policy. Mm. And that's, that's shocking to most people. Like, what do you mean? That's farming. That's, that's what I do. when I bought a farm policy, farm property, farm liability. So why don't I have coverage? And that is an excellent question. So it's a huge part of the education that Farm Commons does is helping people understand how these policies are traditionally built, where the gaps are, and what they need to ask their agent to get a product that works better for their circumstances. This isn't, it's not farmer's fault. You know, they're, it's, the system isn't working for them. And that's because, you know, our most innovative farms are, are pushing the edges of what we conventionally think of as a farm. You know, I think of baby goat day as a perfectly awesome, legit farm activity, but people were not thinking that 20 years ago. They were certainly not thinking that, you know, 30 and 40 years ago. So what has become to be the farm insurance policy that evolved in a different time frame, under a different sense of what agriculture was. So even hoop houses, I mean, these things are new um, when we're speaking in the in, in insurance policy time frame. CSA is new. So those things are often not covered. And we need to help farmers 
figure out the questions to ask and make sure that they're um, that their insurance agents know the diversity of what is happening on their property and the diversity of equipment, property, those sorts of things that they're using and rely on in order to uh, to make a profit at the end of the year. So that's a great thing. And I actually, while you were talking, I pulled up my farm policy because I'm mm-hmm. like, well, while we're on, we probably should take a look and make sure that I'm, and uh, I'm just actually looking through an email here and um, scrolling down here. And while we have... Uh, farm personal liability, uh, $2 million per occurrence. Is that enough? Ooh, great question. Great question. What I always tell folks is it's not about the limit. It's about what's covered. What you want to know is not do is, is 2 million enough, but is my farm stand actually covered um, under this policy? Because if it's not, there's $0 that are for an incident that occurs at the farm stand or a CSA drop site or at baby goat day. So So we need to make sure that we have a specific thing line item for the farm stand. So farm personal liability probably would not cover our farm stand even though it's on the farm. So uh, now I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna, parse some things here. Yes. Um, farm, what we're talking about is the definition of farm. So the first thing we want to do is we want to go to our definition section, make sure we're finding the definition of farm. I would say, you know, 80% of the time a farm stand is actually included. Okay. Now what's more significant is a farmer's market. A farmer's market yes. not included. And that's now, why you need the additional insured certificates. Exactly. Exactly. A CSA drop site not covered. Usually mm. an event, any form of agritourism is not covered. Okay. You know, as soon as I say that, I'm going to take it back and I'm going to say the most incidental pasture walk, you know, yeah. or something yeah. like, sure. Okay. Maybe that baby goat day. No. Okay. Now I have a line item here that says, pick your own operations, number of yeah. acres, one acre that would cover people picking, but not taking tours and baby goat day. Absolutely. And you are really on the right track. If you've got those kinds of things articulated in yeah. your in your policy, that means that your insurance agent um, or broker has a better understanding of what you're doing. Yeah. And well, we went had through that conversation. Yeah. We went through three different brokers and went back and forth. <laughs> so. Oh yeah. Oh, you're doing, you're doing great. You're doing great. I mean, that's what you got to do is you got to really shop around for this yeah. and find the relationship with an agent or a broker that seems seems good. They are not all the same. And they, they almost have to take an authentic interest in what you're doing and apply themselves to learn, you know, how does this business make money? What's important to them? And when you find that kind of relationship, it's, it's worth it because you're going to walk away with insurance that meets your needs. I mean, if you're buying insurance, it doesn't meet your needs. You're just throwing money in a hole in the ground. You know, you might as well be paying for something that will cover you when the bad thing happens. Okay. So another thing I'm looking here at this is I see a broad thing saying personal property replacement cost. That's not, and then I see further down, it says blanket farm, personal property is blanket farm, personal property, like my farm, uh, farm supplies or like small tools, stuff that would be in my barn. Right. So um, we're going to live and die on definitions. <laughs> That's yeah. the law. It's pretty terrible. And actually getting to those definitions can really can, can be a trick. Um, a lot of times when, uh, when a farmer receives his or her policy, all they're receiving is a declarations page, mm-hmm. which is what mm-hmm. you have in front of you. Yep. The, yep. the policy itself, if you're not holding something that's got 
40, 50, 60 pages in it, you're not holding the policy. And that's where those details really are. So the funny thing is, when I first started this work eight years ago, I used to tell farmers, you got to read your policy. I stopped doing that because it's, it's a terrible experience. And, mm. you know, if you didn't go through contract law, if you didn't take that course and, and pass it, why try? This is, mm-hmm. this is an expertise. This is, you know, uh, a field of study. It's for the farmer, unfortunately, it really comes down to that relationship with the insurance agent. Um, you can set aside a week's worth of your life to try to read the policy, but the easier thing is to communicate back with that agent and say, this is what I'm reading. Am I right? Mm-hmm. And a little pro tip, it's always a good idea to try to do that in writing too, so yeah. that you can establish some kind of a paper trail that you know you asked, you got an answer. Um, if your insurance agent is wrong, the best thing you got going for you is to sue, the, I hate to say this, but you sue your insurance agent because they carry a little something called errors and omissions insurance uh-huh. mm-hmm. that covers them if they make a mistake in telling you, like, it's, this yeah. is the American way. We all just sue each other and we all just carry insurance. <laughs> so another thing I'm looking at here is the proper amounts of coverage. So we've got a machinery storage building, which they've got a limit of 27,700. And I actually had them up that for, cause I think yeah. they only gave us 20, but in this day and age with the price of steel, uh, steel, the price of lumber and the hard availability of getting any um, contractors out there, I bet I should be more in the 40 to $50,000 range. Absolutely. Absolutely. In an ideal scenario, your insurance agent is going to come out every year. They're going to have a yeah. conversation with you and you're going to talk about things like that. Where is the price of materials right now? What, what role does that infrastructure play on your farm this year? What about mm-hmm. next year? You know, because as our, as our enterprises grow and change, um, yeah, how fast we want it rebuilt to what standards we need to yeah. be taking that into account. Yep. Yeah. And that was uh, the, uh, the jet that just went over your head. <laughs> and I closed all the windows too. <laughs> I think we should, I, yeah, I think we should put, we should point that out that you live near an air base and there's an air show going on. So if you do hear that in the background, we're going to leave it in. Um, but <laughs> um, sounds good. Yes. So I'm going to actually call down to my local Yomba yard and have them price the replacement on that. And then I add like a 20 or 30% for labor. Um, because, you know, two months ago, we actually had a scare where some of the lights just went off and we traced it back to an outlet, which had burnt out and, you know, it was blackened and all that kind of stuff. So we very easily could have lost that entire structure. Um, so, all right, well, I think we spent enough time on insurance. Um, and there's some things here that I need to look at and talk to with my insurance agent because we're not, I think, um, properly covered as it were, especially with only $10,000 of, of, um, a blanket farm personal property. And I know I've got more of $10,000 in the small tools and equipment and packaging supplies and inventory right. and um, yeah, all that, kind of, like if even fertilizer, I'm sitting on 1500 to $2,000 in just fertilizer that's in that barn. So Absolutely. that's You're all the kind in the of right direction. Yeah. People just don't think of, all right, well, that was insurance. <laughs> I'm glad we, we, we beat that one. Let's talk a little bit about, um, Leasing land. So a lot of farmers are leasing land. A couple of people have come to me in the local area and said, Hey, I've got this piece of property. I'd love for you to take it over or manage it or something. Why is it solid, good to have a solid lease agreement in place? 
Right, right. You know, usually if you ask this question to an attorney, they're going to say something like, well, you know, under the statute of frauds, you know, a verbal lease that's longer than one year is unenforceable. Mm. And that attorney is not wrong. They're not, they're not wrong. Yes, a verbal lease of longer than one year is usually unenforceable. Now, some states will up that to two or three years, but um, it's, you know, that's the case. It's got to be in writing to be enforceable. But I think what's also really important to note here is most farmers aren't looking to enforce the lease. I'm holding mm. up my finger quotes because they'll never go to a courtroom. You know, they will never sue that guy or gal. And, you know, as I like to say, they'd rather hate each other forever than actually go to court about it. Yeah. So for my dollar, when I'm when I'm thinking about what's effective risk management, I'm thinking, you know what? I think a solid lease agreement is about proactive risk management. This is, this is about making sure that I'm on the same page as the person who leases my land or the person whose land I'm leasing. It is about making sure that we have a relationship that can support a dialogue, that we can talk about issues that are coming up, we can work our way around the unexpected, that that authentic relationship is supported by the process of negotiating and writing down the lease. And, you know, I, I bring it up because I think a lot of people assume the opposite. They assume if your relationship is strong and trusting and good, that a handshake is good enough. Mm. And I think, okay, yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with a handshake, but we want authentic relationships, not just like, well, let's not talk about it because it might be uncomfortable. We, we should still talk about it even though it's uncomfortable. And that itself is an illustration and demonstration of our trust and our belief in each other. Hey, you know, we're going to talk about if I rewire uh, the barn, um, you know, is there any chance you're going to pay me back for that when this yeah. lease ends, you know, or will you contribute um, the supplies and can we value my labor for a rental discount? Being willing to engage in that discussion is an act of, of trust and faith in the relationship. And honestly, if the relationship can't support that kind of conversation, we need to take a hard look at mm -hmm. you know, where we're at. Is this going to, is this going to work? You know? Yeah. We can't be so desperate that we're going to try to make anything work because we think it will work out and, oh, well, people will start to understand once they see what we're doing because it won't happen. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. 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 They, they're not, they might not see what you're doing or believe in it. You have to figure that out first. Yeah. Um, we rented, gosh, six or seven pieces of property when we were in New York and we had everything from a handshake to multiple page written. Mm -hmm. And uh, some of those handshakes did not end up well. Um yeah, yeah, it all it has to be yeah. it has to be. I think it, right, what you said right there was so key is you need to bring up all the hard points before you actually get on the property, and I even say you need to have pictures of what your farm looks like and say, hey, there might be weeds here. Yeah, <laughs> so pictures of that because so many people just think about farming as row crop farming where you have perfectly manicured. Uh, fields of corn and beans, and you don't have, you know, tractors coming in late at night to spray and all that kind of stuff, which most people don't understand. I mean, the three things Absolutely. that we always made sure that the landowner knew about was um, uh, pest control, including four-legged pests. Um, mm -hmm. Let's see. The second one was trimming back hedgerows. Can we trim back hedgerows? What size tree? You know, that kind of stuff. And the third one was access uh, evenings, mornings, and uh, getting actually gates and stuff put in. Absolutely. Um, 
Yeah. yeah. So those are well, three or four things. Those are the big ones that, and then again, there could be always other ones like irrigation, that kind of stuff. But, right. um, and I think the other thing is length of lease because, um, we said we really wanted to have a five-year rolling lease where every single year we signed a new lease for five years. Um, because especially if you're going certified organic and it's coming from conventional crops, the first three years is going to be eaten up and just transition. Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So Farm Commons, what, what we do is we provide uh, legal education to farmers nationwide um, on a wide variety of subjects. And uh, our resources are available at our website. Um, and one of the resources that we have that's the most popular is it's a list of farmers and landowners to ask, a list of questions for farmers and landowners to ask while they're thinking about a leasing agreement. And it, mm. it is exactly those things. You know, what kind of animals are going to be there? What sort of aesthetic standards um, do we have for this property? Mm -hmm. Who's responsible for, for fulfilling them? You know, who pays for improvements? What if the well pump breaks? Um, and it's, you know, a lot of people when they, when they go into a leasing relationship are thinking, give me the model, you know, give me mm -hmm. the model where I yep. fill in the blanks. Mm -hmm. And we, our, our perspective is, look, this isn't about the model. This is about the questions and making sure that those issues are getting put on the table and that we have some sort of dialogue about them. Sure, it's ideal if we get to the point of writing it down and signing it, but it's the conversation that's the fundamental element here. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. All right. And where can they find that resource? Farmcommons.org. Uh, we've got a bunch of free resources. Now, at the same time, we have a membership program, and that is so that we can provide a deeper level of support to folks. We've got a question and answer forum where, you know, after folks read these documents, if they have more questions, they can pop into our private attorney-moderated forum um, and ask questions and get answers from us um, and from their peers broadly. We also do workshops. Uh, we, we don't have any in the middle of the summer for farmers for obvious reasons, yes. but those fire up again in the fall. We hold them on a regular basis and it is, you know, hey, here's the 10 things you really need to know about farm law um, to build a resilient business, plus more specialized uh, workshops and opportunities throughout the year. Nice. And do you do those in uh, just around the country or are those uh, usually online? Yeah. Uh, before COVID, we did them entirely in person all around the country. We were very old school. You know, we love to meet mm -hmm. with people, talk with them, understand their situation. But then we had to cancel like up to two dozen workshops all of a sudden with COVID. And we decided to give this online thing a try. Um, it's been a it's been a great success. And we're really happy with the curriculum that that turned out. And the major bonus is that now um, our our curriculum called Discovering Resilience is available to farmers anywhere around the country. Um, it does discuss state-specific issues where that's needed for all 50 states. And so uh, that's going to come around again in October. Folks should look out for it. Nice, nice. Hey, Thriving Farmers, where are you on your Thriving Farmer journey? So if you go to our website, growingfarmers.com, you can click on the assessment button, and that will take you to a form, ask you a few different questions, and that will help you figure out where you are on the five-stage Thriving Farmer journey. And what that does then is kicks you a customized PDF that gives you resources to know exactly what to focus on next in your business to go to the next level. So go to growingfarmers.com and click on the assessment. All right, let's ask a few more questions here that farmers commonly ask. Um, LLC, S-Corporation, what should farmers, what legal structure should farmers set up their businesses with? Right. 
I would say this is probably the most popular question that we get at Farm Commons. Uh, but before I get into it, I want to point out that the first question you asked, what are the things that really trip up a farm business? Mm. What are the make or break legal vulnerabilities? I did not say the failure to form an LLC or a corporation. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. this is this is a nice to have, but these are not the issues on which the farm business really rises or falls. So, you know, that being said, um, it's still a very popular subject and, and there's some things to know. Forming an LLC or an S corporation is great because it will protect the farmer's personal assets from business liabilities. That sounds awesome. But what I also want to point out is that most farmers have their money tied up in business assets, not in personal assets. If we were the type who went out and bought, you know, hunting cabins and boats and all of that kind of stuff, we might be a little more worried about protecting our personal assets. But a lot of that profit stays in the business and turns into more business assets. LLCs and corporations do not protect business assets from business liabilities. Insurance is the only thing that does that. So too often folks get wrapped up in this, this, this decision um, about the business entity when it's really insurance that's going to protect them from the risk they're afraid of. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I think the thing is too is um, now the question is, let's say you have some personal assets and business assets um, and you can mix those assets. That can also be a problem too, right? Exactly, exactly. So many well-meaning farmers take the, you know, smart step um, of forming an LLC or corporation. And I, you know, I left that out, but it is a great idea. It's great. It's easy. It's usually cheap and affordable. Yep. You, you know, just go, go get the LLC. But there's some additional things that need to, there's a, some additional steps that need to be in place to preserve that uh, protection. Uh, the number one see, thing that we see farmers do is act exactly the same before they form the LLC or a corporation as after. Mm. That's a terrible idea because if they're still, if they still have one checking account and from which that account they buy groceries, they buy feed, they buy, you know, mm -hmm. everything, they are mixing personal and business back together and the court is not going to respect that LLC. They're mm -hmm. going to say, hey, I love that you tried to, you know, put a wall between your personal um, assets and your business liabilities, but you didn't because you kept it all in the same bank account. Mm -hmm. So the first fundamental step folks need to take to, to earn the privileges, really, of the LLC or corporation is two separate bank accounts so that we're clear what is farm and what is personal. And we mm -hmm. respect that boundary. Yeah. Um, one thing I find that I have a problem with is, well, I'll just buy that with the, you know, the personal bank account because the farm really can't afford that right now. But mm -hmm. no, 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 no. The proper way to do that is to move money to the farm account. And then that's an owner's investment into the farm. Um, and then use the farm to buy it. That way you completely always keep that completely separate. Absolutely. You want your balance sheet to be accurate. Um, you know, and sure, you can, you know, you can move money around and then pay yourself back and you can do, you can do these things. But at the end of the day, you got to have a balance sheet that's accurate. Because mm -hmm. if somebody comes calling for your business assets, assuming your insurance failed, which we really don't want to have happen, yeah. you know, that's, it's got to be accurate. Yeah, yeah, 
Absolutely. All right. What about volunteers? I know that's a hot subject. People are asking, you know, can I have volunteers? What are the rules? Right, right. Now, I love farm volunteering. I am very pro-volunteering on farms. I don't actually have a farm anymore. It's been, you know, it's been this huge part of my life and the farming community is, is what I am dedicated to, but I don't actually have a farm. Um, I've got a little, you know, homestead with maple syrup and, you know, all the vegetables. So I am one who's getting out there and doing volunteer opportunities on farms, but that doesn't change the legal situation. And my job is to help folks understand how the law sees the farm and sees what we're doing. And there are some very important and serious legal perspectives, legal aspects of having volunteers on the farm. So the straightest way to put it is that generally anyone who does the work of a for-profit business is an employee under the law. Okay. Anyone, anyone who does the work of a for-profit business is an employee under the law. So, and that comes from the definition of employee under the Federal Fair Labor Standards Act. And that is the law that establishes minimum wage, um, you know, overtime where relevant. So it is a, it is a very foundational um, legal principle and has been, been adopted um, by the states um, in terms of how they view employment as well. So when we speak about volunteers, we are speaking about volunteers for nonprofit enterprises, for nonprofit um, charitable entities. And the law does not see that for an employee. So that does mean that when we bring people onto the farm to do work, we are vulnerable to employment laws. So minimum wage, overtime, all of those things could come to call um, for us. So um, that's, that's uh, you know, terrifying to a lot of farm owners and very understandably so. And they'll tell me, well, Rachel, uh, people are doing this. Like, I see this happen all the time. What do you mean that these are actually employees? And to that, I say, no, you're right. This does happen a lot. And, you know, yeah. the law is only as good as its enforcement. Yeah. You're saying it's happening. It doesn't mean it's not quite legal. Exactly. And it doesn't mean that there isn't huge risk. Yeah. Um, you know, I've got a news story that I pull out all the time. It's a California um, farm that uh, went out of business after they received a $100,000 fine for hosting a volunteer grape stomping festival. Oh. I know. And the individuals were stomping the grapes that the that this operation then made into the wine. You know, it was a, a, a farm-based winery. And it's like, well, how could that be bad? You know, it's a good time. Everybody's, everybody's yeah. happy. Hey, the law's the law. <laughs> so yeah. it can well, happen. Of course it would be from California. <laughs> and California is, yes, has particular scenarios where laws get enforced, um, whereas other states might look the other way. Um, yeah. yeah, that's it's not the case. No. Yeah. So nonprofit, because you've made that differentiation there, is that if you are a nonprofit, you can have volunteers? You have a lot more latitude, um, okay. but the door isn't completely wide open, um, but it's a lot easier to, to, to be in that situation. Uh, if there's a nonprofit, and this can happen in a farm scenario, so I'll bring it up. If there's a nonprofit that um, has volunteers who receive their food, their housing um, from that nonprofit entity, that's where we got to be concerned. Mm. The, the more vulnerable the nonprofit, or I'm sorry, the more vulnerable the volunteer 
is um, for their the sustenance of life, you know, one's food, one one's housing, the more obligations the nonprofit has. And that starts to look like employment. And, mm, yeah. you know, if a lawsuit were to be filed, yes, in, in the case where food and housing is provided and the volunteers dependent on that, that too can be considered employment. Yeah. Yeah. So if someone's just showing up for two hours on a Saturday to help with the farmer's market for your nonprofit, you're probably completely fine. But if they're now living on, on a farm supplied housing, getting food from the farm larder and working almost full time as a supposed volunteer, then you're going to probably have major issues. If you're a nonprofit that's weighing your risk, those are the things yeah. that you are going to look at. If you're a for-profit that's weighing your risk and you know, I will slip in there. Hey, farmers are great risk managers. This is what, you know, this yeah. is what we do day in and day out is manage risk. So everybody is capable of managing risk when they have the right information, when they have good information about what the law expects and where their vulnerabilities lie. Um, farmers choose to become vulnerable like every day of the week. So, yeah. you know, um, but that's, that's the job is understanding that risk and choosing how to manage it. So a lot of farms we work with offer incentives to their workers, such as housing, meals, produce perks. Um, what recommendations do you have on that from a legal recommendation? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm glad you brought it up because a lot of people don't realize how regulated uh, the provision of food, housing, and other benefits really is. So from a tax perspective, we're going to be asking some hard questions about, uh, you know, are these wages? Is this a taxable benefit? And all of that uh, implicates where and how they're included on the W-2, whether or not we need to include the value of that item when we're calculating our payroll taxes, all of that good stuff. Many farms are also using these uh, resources, using food and housing to achieve at least the minimum wage. Oh. And in that situation where where food and housing is that the provision of those things is essential to meeting the minimum wage where it's required, uh, then we have a lot more <laughs> obligations that, that come into play. There are detailed rules about how those resources are valued. Um, so, you know, we need to look at, well, what's the cost to the farmer of providing that housing? And how does that compare to its fair market value? How does that compare to some other standards that, uh, that the law has laid out? So uh, let's give me, let me give you a scenario because I think this people may, there's a lot of variations here. So let's mm -hmm. say paying someone $15 an hour on your farm, but you give them free housing and um, free run of the cooler. Mm -hmm. That would be different than if you were paying them $4 an hour saying, hey, I'm giving you a 500 a month voucher for my produce and I'm counting the housing that you're living in as $2,000 a month. To get exactly. You okay. You're totally on the right track. The, legally, those are two different scenarios and we have some different factors that we need to be looking at. Right. Okay. One last thing around that is let's say that housing, you on your taxes, take that as, as the, uh, that not bringing the income in on that housing as a write-off, then that mm -hmm. probably would show up as uh, giving that to that person. Then they might get a little bit more on your case. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This is, this is, so we have, um, 
we've spilled ink across 50 pages yes. <laughs> uh, to, to explain these scenarios. So we, we've got a, a guide at our website, Farmer's Guide to In-Kind Wages. Um, it's gonna, it goes through all of this, this yeah. stuff. Um, yeah, and it's particular to, um, to housing, uh, food, those sorts of those sorts of things. Another thing I'll sneak in there real quick: um, housing isn't just a um, an IRS taxable. How do we account for this kind of scenario? Housing implicates OSHA, and Ooh, warehouse. Yep. Yeah, where housing is provided, all of a sudden OSHA becomes enforceable um, against the farm in many circumstances, and and then we have to be paying attention to what's the water flow rate where is the bathroom oh, how gosh. much hot water oh yeah then then it's like detailed so yeah. um yeah that's that's opening up a can of worms so yeah, yeah take a look at our guide for the details <laughs> aren't you glad i just keep setting you up to talk about these guides <laughs> I know, right? and i hate to do that i i'm not trying to hide the ball it's just that some of these issues they are so nuanced oh that, absolutely yeah there's so much there's so much yeah. to know so. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I, yeah, the, 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 complications and the variations are so much. And that's why being a farm in some of these like really hard areas, like there's some beautiful farms on Nantucket or in some of these, you know, beach towns in Maine, but getting people to work there is incredibly challenging because the cost of housing, right. but now you're setting yourself. So it's just, yeah, it's some of these places, oh, exactly. beautiful, yeah. but it's incredibly hard to farm there from all these right. things. It's a nationwide problem, and it's 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 the most acute in areas that are popular um, for travel. But yeah, farm housing is 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 yeah such a problem. And then it's the converse problem in areas that are extremely remote. Housing is a challenge yep. again. Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We have farmers I know that are at, they're I think they're in Montana, and they have that very very big problem right now. They just can't get people out there, right. even though they do provide housing. All right. One last question here. We'll wrap it up. Um, as an attorney, what key advice would you have for someone who's just getting started farming? Yeah. You know, what I should say and will say, hey, check out our website, listen to our podcast, <laughs> brush up on, on the legal stuff, go into this with, uh, with your eyes wide open, um, get the information you can make a decision about what's right for your business. You can assess risk. You can manage that. You just need the information to do it. And that's why Farm Commons exists. You know, take our, take our basic workshop. You can expand to more advanced offerings uh, from their podcast, totally free anytime. Folks are listening to one right now, so you probably love it. Yeah. But I also want to build on that a little bit and say, look, you can, you can trust yourself. You can, you can pay attention to your gut. You know, if something makes you feel not very good, don't turn away from it. Think about why, you know, is this, is this something that's going on with, with the land, a relationship with a landlord or a tenant? Is this something in a relationship that you have with a farming partner? Was it in a conversation with an insurance agent? Is it something with an employee? Look deeper. Don't, your gut is telling you something mm-hmm. and you should look at that. And I know that that, that can be, it can be scary, especially for the beginning farmers or for those who are transitioning, because we don't want more problems. We want solutions. So why make problems? But if they're there, they're going to come for you. So, you know, dig in and see if you can figure it out. And that really is what, what's going to make you sleep at night. You can't sleep at night when you have these, these unknown problems. When you know you know what your problems are and you're working towards a solution, you can tend to sleep better at night. And um, 
And that's why we're here, really. I mean, this is about quality of life and longevity uh, for farmers, um, empowering folks with information and solutions. And, and, you know, you combine that with your gut, I think folks are going to be on the right path. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. So the takeaway is go to your website, download all the free stuff, check it out. Um, but also realize that, you know, it's not rocket science. There are um, things and there's yeah. people along the way to help you too. I mean, you guys got the exactly. resources, but as you said earlier, just work with your agent and make them come out to the farm and walk through things and uh, make sure they understand, you know, exactly what you're doing. Stay curious, ask questions. Um, it's not rocket science. And too often the law is, is, um, you know, for obvious reasons, made to seem like this extremely opaque specialty that you must pay the big bucks, you know, to, <laughs> to access. Yep. But yep. don't worry, you know, and you're going to save yourself some money if you educate yourself first. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, a membership at Farm Commons costs 99 a year. Well, that's like, that's like 20 minutes with an attorney. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. you're yes. going you're gonna to save that um, when you can figure things out very well um, ahead of time and, and realize exactly what value is an attorney really going to provide to you and use it to maximum benefit. Well, and the problem is too, is if it's just a regular t- attorney is going to have to go research this. And they're Absolutely. probably, you're probably going to provide in literally 15 minutes what they may provide in two hours. Right. So, right. um, yeah, bring our stuff to your attorney and we, we have membership for attorneys because, I, you know, let's be honest, I didn't learn this in school. Um, I had to learn this myself. There are a couple of law schools with farm law classes, but they don't emphasize the needs of the direct to consumer individual. Um, and, you know, it, and that's, it's a whole nother can of worms. So here we are. Absolutely. All right. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for your time today. It was a great conversation and, um, uh, People can find out more about you and what you do at farmcommons.org. But thanks so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. And thanks for what you do. Telling these stories is, is, is so important. So I'm, I'm really glad that your podcast is out there and folks are listening. Yeah, you're right. Because I was supposed to be wiring a bus right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks, Rachel. Thank you. Yeah, bye. Hey, Thriving Farmers, have you checked us out on YouTube lately? We have a bunch of new content there, including a few rants by me. I uh, want to tell you, you don't want to miss them. Um, I actually go rant about you know some of the problems I see in our space and some of the challenges I see farmers uh, facing. So go check that out. We've got instructional videos over there as well. Talk about setting up our new farm here in Ohio and all the steps we're going to do that, as well as just tutorials and tips on best practices for all sorts of things on the farm. So go ahead, check over at Growing Farmers on YouTube and see the new content we put together for you. So there you have it, another episode in the books. So I'd love if you would hop on over to iTunes and leave us a rating and a review. Those mean everything to us. We love to hear what you're thinking. If you have a podcast guest that you can recommend, please pop on over to the Thriving Farmer Podcast website and leave us a review. That's thrivingfarmerpodcast.com.